stumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five What a way to make a living Why was it that my boss walked down the hall with a little note that said, please remove the calendar from my wall, and then walked back to his office. And I had to follow him back down the hall, remove the calendar from his wall. Um, why was it that uh, a philosophy professor hired me to type his autobiography? And it turned out what he wanted me to type while he stood in the room without a shirt was uh, an account of all his sexual experiences. That's Ellen Cassidy, one of the founders of 9 to 5, the National Association of Women Office Workers. She's just published a new book, Working 9 to 5, A Women's Movement, A Labor Union, and the Iconic Movie. And today on Labor Goes to the Movies, Ellen talks with us about the origins of the movement, the union, and some insider stories about the 1980 hit film, 9 to 5. It turns out that Dabney Coleman, it wasn't entirely acting what a kind of villain he was. He, he, was, <laughs> he was kind of a sexy pig himself. And that's so for real. It's all himself. And you hear him say these things. And, oh my gosh, it's just, it's really him. Here's Elise Bryant. So I know we're talking about 9 to 5, the union, the movement, the, the movie. Uh, but this is our Labor Goes to Movie show. So we always start with this question of what is the movie that you most remember uh, at your youngest age that you saw? That when you saw this movie, it like, oh, movies. And it doesn't matter what genre it was, just what was that movie that you just went, aha? I can say Fantasia. I oh. was very, very young. Actually, it might have actually before that, when I was about three, there was some Shirley Temple movie that I had to be dragged out of because I didn't understand that you couldn't talk your way through the movie. <laughs> those were the two. And then we never saw movies when I was a kid. And then when I was a teenager, I decided I had to go on a desensitization campaign of my own where I just went to movie, 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 movie. And I was so vulnerable to them because I just hadn't built up my defenses. So when something horrible happened, I was, it was like it was happening to me. So um, that is kind of faded, but yeah, I love movies now. So you saw Fantasia on the small screen on television? No, no, was no. The movie theater. Big screen. Yeah. Big screen, okay, all right. So, I, but I, I, I thought I got a little mixed up because I thought you said you didn't go to the movies, but you-, you Yeah, we just hardly ever went, that's all. That was a very special occasion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We, yeah. No, it wasn't. Also, we didn't have a, we didn't have a television either. Oh. <laughs> when did you get your first television? What did we do for entertainment? Oh. Well, we read books. Uh huh. Uh huh. No. When when did you get your first television? Never. My my parents never never had a television. They died without having had a television. I, I wish people could see the look on, on Elisa's face. <laughs> but I want to go back. I want to go back to the to the to the not going to movies because Ellen and it's, it was similar in, in my family. Uh, my, my dad uh, thought movies were a complete 
waste of it was a political thing for him he thought mm. hollywood was uh just a waste of time and it's very funny because the story i always tell and i've told it on him with him you know that he wound up creating a labor film festival you know, but but he used to give me such shit when I would be going off to the Dryden Theater night after night to see, oh, God, musicals or Westerns or some other waste of time. So I'm just curious, was what was the reason for 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 no movies in your childhood? Um, well, I have to say it had a little to do, I think, with money. We didn't mm-hmm. have a whole lot. Mm-hmm. We didn't go to restaurants either. Yep. Same so, here. Same here. No, yeah. Yeah. So it it partly had to do with my parents' belief that whatever they had to offer their children was really all we needed and was better than anything we would find outside the doors of our house. (laughs) (laughs) With the exception of the library. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. The library was okay. That's right. That's right. Yeah, my parents were big on the library, too. We we could go, we could walk to the library, which was a, a good distance away. Uh, it was a, at least an hour and a half walk. Oh my God! Wow. No. Yeah, and we could go. Worth there. it. Worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I feel that way. Yeah. So here we are about books, and uh, and and you have written this fantastic book about an amazing. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes, <laughs> I was. My book, is... <laughs> my book is called. Working nine to five, a women's movement, a labor union, and the iconic movie. And it's a first person account of how the nine to five working women's organization got started, how it expanded nationwide, how we started our union, and, and how Jane Fonda came to us and proposed to make a movie about office workers. So, Ellen, you probably don't know that Elise. Um... I guess it's fair to say you started your career as a secretary, right, Elise? Is yeah, that is that, that would be fair to say? Yes. So I thought maybe she could share that, and then um, I, I just have a feeling that you guys might have been on parallel tracks. Yeah, <laughs> I am sure. I am sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I went to the University of Michigan, and in my first year of college, my mother died, and the next year I dropped out. Uh, and so, but that was that was campus radicalism was on. There was the anti-war movement and the black action movement. Um, and feminism was 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 uh, definitely coming into our consciousness collectively. And so the first work I found really was working as a secretary. And I it, actually I started sort of part-time uh, at the University of Michigan. And so this is like, oh, you know, like 1974 or thereabouts. And when did you start mm-hmm. working as secretary, Ellen? Or did you start? Um, I was a clerk typist at Harvard starting in 1972. Oh, this is and that's where Karen um, and I got to, who knew each other from college, we got together um, with some other office workers at Harvard and from around Boston. And that was the very beginnings of the nine to five organization. And, you know, it was really a revelation to us. Oh, you know, uh, the people around us and we ourselves are working people and even though we're not very much talked about in the labor movement we're not seen as workers really because workers are guys in hard hats with a wrench um maybe there's something going on here and we started listening to what was filtering in from other office workers around us and people were furious about low pay and unequal pay and training men to be their own supervisors and having to do favors for the boss. And so the nine to five movement really 
took off right at the beginning of the 1970s from those early conversations we were hearing at, a, at work. Right. Yeah. So so we are on the same track. You, Chris is correct in his analysis that we might have been existing on uh, different planes at the same time. Yeah. So what what was your experience as as a support staff person, as we say now? Personally, um, you know, what kind of stories did you have to share? Personally, about? yeah. So um, we had our stories. Um, there was the day that somebody walked into Karen's office and looked right at her and said, isn't anybody here? Thought, oh, I'm here. You see me? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. 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 And in my case, um, part of it was I had a college degree. And uh, why was it that I was considered 10 typing fingers? And that was it. You know, why was it that my boss walked down the hall with a little note that said, please remove the calendar from my wall? And then walk oh. back to his office oh. and I had to follow him back down the hall, remove the calendar from his wall. Um, why was it that uh, a philosophy professor hired me to type his autobiography and it turned out what he wanted me to type while he stood in the room without a shirt was uh, an account of all his sexual experiences. Oh, and dear. my heart was pounding. I didn't know what to do. You know, I knew something was wrong here, but all I could think to do was just keep typing. So experiences like that, you know, uh, but there were many more. And and when we started listening and deciding that we were going to start an organization, we heard, I mean, the basic story that we heard was, I take my job very seriously. I'm good at what I do. And why is it that I'm undervalued and underpaid? True this. Yes, and, and and as I, um, you know, uh, continue to work uh, as as a secretary, uh, one of the things that occurred to me was how much secretaries are the backbone of the organization. And and now I know. I mean, one, if I want something. I'm go. I'm going to the person who's working as the the, the executive administrative assistant before I go to anybody else. Because I know that this person has more knowledge about what's going on and ways to get in that other people can't. Right. And then the, the tragedy is that um, pay and title don't reflect that. Oh, no. So, no, 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 no. Mm -mm. <laughs> one woman in our organization, her boss came to her and said, you know, I can't afford to let you go in any way because, you know, you're running this place, you know, more than I do. So he couldn't promote her out of that job. Right. And yet her salary was way below his. And she was somebody who ended up quitting her job and coming to work as a staff person for nine to five. Ah, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then there were those, the, the women that I call the, the office wife, who, who really mm -hmm. did everything for this man, you know, except wife is behind, uh, but was absolutely taking care of every facet of his life, the personal as well as the business, and were like that woman, indispensable, who they would not give a raise to and would not promote. And that was just, uh, to me, that was this. Right. We started holding what we called petty office procedure contests or bad boss <laughs> contests. We held these in cities across the country. And people were invited to send in the most outrageous thing they'd ever been asked to do. Uh -huh. And the winner of the first year was uh, a boss asked his secretary to sew up a hole in his trousers while he was wearing them. Mm. Yes. Mm. Uh, then we heard about a, a woman who had been fired because she brought her boss, a lawyer, a sandwich, 
a corned beef sandwich on white bread instead of rye. Ooh. And we would show up at these guys' offices with a like a posse of women all, you know, ready for, <laughs> for battle. And TV cameras would be rolling. And some of these people, the bosses were sort of good natured and sheepish and they sort of backed down, but others just stuck to their guns. And the one with the sandwich, she didn't get her job back. No. Wow. Yeah, there's a, there's a moment in the documentary where this guy is like being really obnoxious and and saying these um, covertly sexual things. And it's it's you see it in this woman's face that she is so uncomfortable and so painful. Yeah. She's smiling, sort of. Uh, and it's just it's it's just remarkable. It, and it was, yeah. it was watching the film that made me reflect back to my life working as a secretary, which I had yeah. not forgotten about, but hadn't realized, hadn't thought about in that in that way. Yeah, well, you're talking about the documentary that's called Nine to Five, The Story of a Movement. It's a great portrait of our movement. And uh, it was made by Julia Reichert and Stephen Bognar, mm -hmm. who also won an Oscar for another labor-related film called American Factory. Right. So that's a, that's a great thing to watch. And then you document in the book. Let me talk a little about how we connected with Jane Fonda. First of all, Jane Fonda and Karen Nussbaum, one of our original founders, knew each other from the anti-war movement. And in the late 70s, uh, Jane Fonda came to Karen, who'd been keeping her informed of all the organizing we were doing, and said that she wanted to make a film about women office workers. And we were over the moon, of course. Uh, and Jane brought a team of uh, her, you know, her writers to meet with our members. And they popped a question that we had never thought to ask in all our years of organizing, which was, have you ever fantasized about doing in your boss? Oh, and wow. there was a moment of stunned silence. And then the room <laughs> just exploded because it that everybody had. <laughs> One woman talked about grinding her boss up in a coffee grinder and to dripping him through and serving him the cup of coffee. And another uh, woman talked about swiveling her boss around in his swivel chair and swiveling him right out the window. And these fantasies went right into the Hollywood hit movie, Nine to Five in 1980. And then when women saw ourselves, women office workers saw ourselves on the big screen, it was just, the atmosphere was just electric because there hadn't really been such a thing before. And here were three of them, three working women, all banding together to, uh, to take care of their boss in a very unique way, and then run the office the way it should be run, much better than he had ever been able to do. And um, there's one scene in, the, in that Hollywood movie where Jane Fonda is like her first day at work and she's sent into a room with a giant photocopier machine. And she doesn't really know how it works. And she's standing there and papers start flying out of different orifices of the machine and they're flying all over the room and she's scrambling to pick them up and her lip starts to tremble. And women would stand up in the audience and yell, push the stop button. <laughs> so the movie was a giant hit. The reviews weren't that great, but uh, the audience just ate it up. And it was one of the highest grossing films ever. And that was the movie that Dolly Parton wrote her enduring anthem for, um, working nine to five, that toe tapping, fantastic song. 
So um, that, that movie just gave us an enormous boost as an organization and as a union. And uh, Jane Fonda was just the absolute ideal partner. She says, every minute we were making this movie, I saw myself as married to a movement. And you just couldn't have wished for any better partner than, than she was. She, um, before and after the movie, she did things like she would hold a brown bag lunch in Boston. It was 40 minutes long, so people could come on their lunch hour and just, just give a rabble rousing speech about the importance of organizing. She was in the New York Times with the headline, Jane Fonda to, or to office workers, colon organize. She gave a, um, she in, in San Francisco for National Secretary's Week in 1979, 7,000 people heard her speaking about the rights of office workers uh, in San Francisco. So she was, she was absolutely great. And, um, and that, that, let me just say that when she said she was going to make this movie, and it was going to be a comedy, we were a little worried. I so we asked <laughs> we asked, could we could we station somebody on the set just to make sure nothing goes wrong? Because, um, you know, people get it wrong about secretaries and, and secretaries are portrayed as bimbos and office wives. And and you sort of sympathize with the poor boss who has to put up with this airheaded, you know, assistant. We didn't want that. So we had we had a, a set of principles that we insisted on in our heads. Uh, the movie had to show respect for office work and office workers. It had to uh, make clear that it was the unfair boss who was the problem, not the women. The focus had to be on the women's work lives, not their personal lives. Uh, it, the focus had to be on how to make clerical jobs better, not how to move women out of those jobs. And uh, not only the problems, but the solutions had to be portrayed and the means to winning those solutions had to be women banding together. So that was a pretty tall order to <laughs> throw at a production team. But uh, Jane was right there. And uh, all three of the, of the stars, Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, were really with the program. Um, and the the movie really is true to those principles and i watched it recently and it really really holds up so uh take a look it really does but i have to say it's a lot of chutzpah you've got a major movie star that wants to make a movie and y'all are giving her her marching orders that's that's just blows my mind i mean maybe we thought we were giving her the marching orders but first of all she was already with the program. Uh -huh. uh, but yeah, we our organization said, would it be okay if we had somebody stationed on the set to just make sure nothing goes wrong? And not only did she agree to that, but she allowed that member of our staff to move into her house for several months. And then Janice would show up on the set every day and watch like a hawk to make sure nothing went wrong. Um, I remember one thing that she she flagged was that the three office workers, this didn't have to do with the politics of the movie, but the three office workers get in line for lunch and they're ordering avocado sandwiches. So this was 1980, and maybe that would have been true in California, but it just didn't read right around the country. So that was one thing that we got taken out of the movie. <laughs> it's the little things. Now it's the, the little things. <laughs> 
right? So the money gets very to... silly. As you may remember, there's some scenes in the hospital where they're wheeling some dead body down the corridor on a gurney, and uh, these crazy things happen in a in the uh, the boss's mansion where he's uh, strung up close to the ceiling, chained to some kind of apparatus. I mean, it, get, it gets pretty wild, but um, Jane also was very, very concerned that the movie not be didactic. And we were like pretty earnest. So we were not necessarily where she was about that, but she was absolutely right because the mix of entertainment and education and inspiration is just, it's priceless. So you, so you chose Janice to be the person to represent you on the set. Why Janice? And has Janice talked about or written about her experience of being that person? No, she's, I, I don't know where she is today, but she, um, she was our communications staffer. So she was, she was right on it. And I myself would have been pretty intimidated moving into Jane Fonda's house, but <laughs> she handled it. That's uh, remarkable. And, and, and I think that that really talks, uh, speaks to you all's um, collective sense of what was needed and uh, awareness of, of, of uh, how Hollywood could have gone wrong really ho horribly. Yeah. After the movie came out, they, there was a spin-off TV show. And at first, Jane Fonda and her partner, Bruce Gilbert, signed on as producers or you know assistant producers of the show but it very soon became clear that it had deviated from the original conception of the movie the movie was just so pitch perfect about respecting the characters and having them be the center of attention and so on and then this tv show sort of slid into the usual tropes of you know the the secretary you know, the Jane, the uh, Dolly Parton character comes in on her first day of work, and instead of uh, sort of staying in the mindset of the women, the TV show kind of morphed over to the mindset of the boss. So you see the boss like kind of giving her the eye and and think you know looking over her body, and you're with the boss instead mm. of the mm. the woman. And so very quickly, Jane Fonda and Bruce Gilbert took their names off of it because it's easy to get it wrong. What made you say, okay, it's time to write the book? What motivated you? Uh, well, I have to say, I got the idea for the book the day of the Women's March, right after Donald Trump was uh, inaugurated. And uh, I saw all those people out there. There were some women staying with us in my house uh, who had never been to a demonstration before. And they reminded me of the nine to fivers back in the early 70s who, you know, they, they were not part of the women's movement. Uh, but they were passionate about equal pay and fair treatment. And it was so exciting back then to sort of create, carve out a space for women like that to make their voices heard. And here again, it was kind of happening. And uh, I had been involved in other things having to do with uh, history of in Lithuania, the Holocaust, things that had nothing to do with the United States so, per se. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is a moment when I need to put everything I have into what's going on here in my own country. So uh, I started delving into these old boxes and going to archives. And uh, it was it was my, just an amazing experience to kind of relive just the guts and and energy we had then to to just 
go at it. And we were very young and very green, but we, uh, we went around, we asked for advice from people. We sort of took in what we could. And then we realized we have to, we have to forge our own path. And I think that's what people today have to do. And so my book, what I'm hoping is that from reading it, people will not only learn from our history, but also understand that, you know, you'll take a little bit from here and a little bit from there, but really we're going to make our own tactics. We're going to have our own views and it's, it's on us because as the old labor song says, every generation's got to win it again um, in, in our own way. But, you know, from my book, I, you really get the texture of what it was to like spend 12 hours in the, in the little cubbyhole office we had and, and uh, dream up all these crazy tactics for taking on the boss, like the bad boss contest. And, you know, we ended up winning millions of dollars from banks and insurance companies, uh, sometimes from uh, filing a, a suit and a discrimination charge, but often they just threw money at us because they wanted us to go away. And that was such a revelation that if you speak up as a group, you can win a lot. And I think in the, the surge of labor organizing that we're seeing today, uh, you have the same thing. It's like, who are these people? How come we've never heard from them before? Oh, I see. They're essential. They're right under our noses. And they are looking around at each other and seeing their own power and using all kinds of brand new tactics to, to bring their cause to the fore. Um, and people are winning union drives and they're winning, you know, sometimes outside the uh, National Labor Relations Board traditional organizing, winning citywide improvements in, in uh, minimum wage and uh, the National uh, Domestic Workers Alliance has a bill of rights for domestic workers, just as we had a bill of rights for women office workers. And those things really, really can make a lot of progress. And that's what we're seeing today. Agree. Agree. Totally. So, Chris, do you have a question? Well, I have two questions. One's a serious one and one one is a not serious one. Elise <laughs> and I were talking last night and, and she, I think she has a... a, a uh, it's either a confession or a revelation about Dabney Coleman. I just, I think we have to go there, Elise. We just, we have to, we have to explore this. Oh, oh no, he didn't. Oh yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ellen, truth out. I love Dabney Coleman in that role. I thought he was just perfect and- the Oh, he was fabulous. <laughs> what a <laughs> Oh, that's that's a revelation. Okay, yeah, he is. He was a perfect mix delicious. of just like his, yes, yeah, and I could see it. I could see he it. Delicious. Yeah, so that's okay. Well, now I'm going to tell you about a a new documentary that's just been made. It's called Still Working Nine to Five, mm. and it's not in theaters yet, but it's making the rounds of festivals, and it is a sort of behind the scenes look at the making of the 1980 comedy. And so you have interviews with all the stars, including Dabney Coleman. And it turns out that Dabney Coleman, it wasn't entirely acting what a kind of villain he was. He, he, was, he was kind of a sexy pig himself. No and that's so for real. It's on himself. And you hear him say these things. And oh my gosh, it's just, it's really him, you know? Uh -huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Thank you. All righty, Chris. Go with, that was that the serious question, Chris? 
<laughs> well, it was it was it was both. It was both. But but thank you. And 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 uh, I guess we need to get a hold. Uh, you need to connect us up with uh, still working nine to five. We should yes. definitely yes. Uh, show that. But actually, it leads into my other question, which is, uh, you know, you talked about the film, which I, I agree. I mean, you know, films do not always hold up, but that film holds. It is still funny. And hearing you go through that list of the things that you you that you wanted, it's amazing because every one of those issues, you know, it is was honored in in the film. But it's still an incredibly entertaining film. Then we had the documentary that came out a couple of years ago. We showed that also in, in the Labor Film Festival. And I, I was curious about your thoughts on the difference between, you know, a blockbuster Hollywood film um, and a, a documentary. Same issue, same organization, uh, really, I think, different takes. Yeah, um, I think that um, back in 1980, one of the things we were facing was that the concepts of uh, respect for office work and respect for office workers, and there is discrimination. And uh, th that film makes you laugh at these issues, but they were kind of new issues for a lot of people. Once that movie was over, was, was out in the theaters and millions of people had seen it, it was a new landscape. And uh, there was a new understanding and our and the public debate had moved forward that much farther so that it was no longer a question of us having to convince people, oh yeah, there is discrimination. Oh no, women don't feel completely satisfied being at the bottom of the office hierarchy. Uh, it was now, okay, what do we do about these issues? And a lot of things that had been considered individual issues became matters of policy at the bargaining table, uh, in, in, in corporate boardrooms and in the public uh, sphere. So years and years later, you have this documentary that shows that whole uh, progression. And it, wasn't, it wouldn't have been enough for that documentary in 2021 to just say, here are the problems, uh, what are we gonna do about them? It was then that the documentary really takes up, how do you make social change? How do you move from one place to another? And of course the Hollywood movie was one means of moving forward but then the documentary goes into what's it like to have a union drive how did employers fight back what happened after 1980 and what we see was that uh, while we had no trouble getting women uh, to start a union drive and be interested in improving their lot what was really hard was getting to that contract and actually sealing it sign deliver um, Bosses fought back, you know, the corporate sector really fought back in a big way, and that affected unions across the country. And uh, a lot of what we uh, were trying to do, with, at least in the bargaining sphere, was was crushed by a, just a juggernaut of, of corporate resistance. And the, the documentary takes that up, and then it ends on, I think, an appropriately positive note where you've got whole new sectors childcare workers, home health workers, organizing. And that once again, the screen is filled with cheering people who've, who've won something. And uh, as I said, that this is what, you know, th this is what happened to me when I was writing my book where I was thinking, you know, how am I gonna handle some of the, the defeats we suffered? Um, and I think the, the documentary kind of struggles with that question. And I came to feel that you never win it all. You never do. You always advance things a little bit and then there can be a retreat and then you move forward again. 
Um, and that's just the way it is. And we're in a mo an up moment. And I'm hoping that today's labor struggles can overcome some of the, the pushback that we encountered from employers and find ways, new ways around those. Um, but, you know, there will be times of victory and there will be times of defeat and then more times of victory. And uh, and I think the documentary really shows that. You know, the, the Hollywood film ends with a great scene where the three women, uh, the, the head of the, the chairman of the board has come and visited. They've transformed the office. Their boss the sheepishly takes credit for all of it. But uh, the women then go into a back room with a bottle of champagne and they say, wow, we've really won a lot. And then they say, hmm, but we still have more to do. And then one of them says, well, this is just the beginning. And then they hold their glasses high and they toast, well, here's to the beginning. So uh, that's what we have to do over and over again. Alan Cassidy, wonderful to talk to you as always. And uh, look forward to seeing more of what comes out and having you back on. Thanks very much. Okay, Elise and Chris, wonderful to talk with you. Ellen Cassidy, one of the founders of 9to5, the National Association of Women Office Workers. Check out her new book, Working 9to5, A Women's Movement, A Labor Union, and The Iconic Movie at ellencassidy.com. That's Cassidy spelled C-A-S-S-E-D-Y. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.